Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to the Bleed in the Garden State podcast presented by Bet Online. What's going on, guys? Super excited to be back with the Bleed in the Garden State podcast. We have a great conversation for you guys today. This is going to be an awesome episode. We had current Princeton offensive coordinator Jim Mitchell on the show. Uh, Coach joined Austin DeVitkus and I. Uh, We caught up about a lot of awesome topics. Uh, Coach was actually our coach at Rutgers, and it was just nice to see him and and catch up with him and and preview uh, tonight's matchup against the number three ranked Rutgers Scarlet Knights. Princeton is ranked number seven, and this is going to be a clash of the Titans at Class of 52 Stadium in Princeton, New Jersey tonight. Uh, So if you're in New Jersey uh, and you like lacrosse, go down to Princeton and watch a great matchup. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation, so I hope you guys enjoy. center on the run, and it goes low to score. The Tigers pull the upset, knock off third-ranked Georgetown, 10-8. Princeton next up for them. They will take on Rutgers next week. The Princeton team today played one heck of a game. Uh, we are here with one of the top offensive minds in lacrosse. One of our former coaches at Rutgers, current Princeton offensive coordinator, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Mitchell. Coach, how you doing, man? It's great to see you. I'm fired up. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. It's great to spend time with two uh, two former Scarlet Knights, and uh, it's good to hear you guys are staying involved in the lacrosse community and uh, providing some good resources for those who love the sport. Now, you guys are coming off a huge win uh, against Georgetown on the road. Uh, you welcome in the number, th- uh, number three ranked uh, Rutgers Scarlet Knights to Class of 52 Stadium. How you guys feeling? You know, that was a great win. Um, turn- and then you got to turn right back around for another big challenge this week. This is a rivalry game. You've played on both sides of this rivalry, so that's kind of got to be really unique. Uh, Michael Cup on the line tomorrow night, 6 p.m. I guess the team you are very familiar with. A lot of these guys, you recruited to Rutgers. Yeah, it's been an exciting start to the season. You know, when um, you know, when you're gone for that long, uh, you know, you, you, there's no shortage of emotion and excitement leading into the season. And things kind of started fast and furious with three games in our first week. Uh, Maryland being at the tail end of that and um, had, a, had a hard-fought battle that got away from us a little bit at Maryland. We were able to, you know, be a week better and, um, and get, a, you know, a better result against Georgetown, a great program. Um, that's going to continue to do damage and then uh, having the opportunity to turn right around and play Rutgers, you know, another team ranked in the top five with uh, you know talent and across the board and a great staff and just a program I have you know, the utmost respect for. So it's been a hard hitting, exciting start to the season, but uh, you know, these are the type of games we want to schedule every year. And uh, the game has just changed from Saturday uh, afternoon to tomorrow, Friday night at 6 PM. So we have a nice Friday night lights for the New Jersey state championship tomorrow. That's what you used to always call this game. I loved it. Being a New Jersey guy who played high school across New Jersey and having a lot of guys in our locker room. And I'm sure you guys have a lot of guys in your locker room as well. Um, it's, it's really awesome. Yeah. The Friday night lights. I think everyone likes Friday night lights and it's supposed to be great weather. So hopefully we'll have a nice uh, New Jersey turnout tomorrow. I will say back in our playing days, my favorite away stadium <clears throat> to play it was Princeton. I loved it. 
we you have that like little locker room you have to walk across the street go across i think it's sherard field i don't know how to pronounce it correctly and then it's just glitz and glamour everybody from new jersey is at the game so <laughs> maybe some upsets there but it is what it is you know yeah it's a nice it's a nice field it's like tucked into the corner of campus it's got a lot of history there um it's a really good setup for a lacrosse game now, where do you guys eat before games? Because I swear, you know, where we ate before the game, it was amazing food, but I think we ate a little too well before we played Princeton back in the day. <laughs> well, honestly, we're, before games, um, if it's on campus, we typically have something set up with our dining services. So we'll be, you know, we'll be on campus or, or, you know, sometimes have something catered in, but um, there are no shortage of good restaurants in and around, in and around town. But we pretty much keep things uh, on campus here for game days. Yeah, it's pretty legit. It's pretty legit, man. I mean, Princeton's great neighborhood. Uh, spent a lot of time there. Yeah, remember when I saw you on the street just randomly? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yo, you remember that? I was like, I was literally getting food and I'm like, that's Coach Mitchell. <laughs> I see you everywhere I go. Every lacrosse game I go to, that's you're there. High school game, doesn't matter. Club, high school. I'm just right. going to get pick up dinner on my way home. There's There you are. That's right. I saw you um, at uh, the high school football game in uh, Sayreville in the fall. Yeah, that too. That too. Got high it. school wow. football games, high school lacrosse games, you name it. It's in New Jersey. Alex Schoen's there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, you're, you're everywhere too, man. A relentless recruiter and uh, developer of talent. So I guess that's where we'll get into the, the, the segue of, you know, not playing last year and you know, the end of the 2022, uh, 2020 season, you guys were on fire. Uh, that must've been really tough. Um, like you guys were playing awesome and had a good team coming back last year as well. And clearly I uh, have a great team this year, uh, but your guys on campus, you did practice, did practice. Um, you've always been a coach who's focused on the fundamentals, uh, smart part, uh, small part drills, and it's something you're really good at. Um, so even though you guys didn't play and would rather have played, um, it's clear you guys made the most out of that uh, off time. Uh, what was that like, just just preparing and not having any light at the tunnel on Saturday? Uh, it was challenging, but it had its benefits as well. You know, it definitely had its silver linings. Initially, you know, I think we felt sorry for ourselves, like the rest of the country. Um, you know, and unfortunately, our COVID situation extended into, you know, all of last year as well, not just 2020. Um you know, the, you know, the Ivy League did not participate in athletics. So um, that was disappointing, kind of kind of having you know, negative news sort of stack on top of each other from a participation standpoint. Um, but you know, we did have some guys on campus. You know, we had about, you know, a third of our team roughly were enrolled on campus in the spring, but, you know, not enough to play games or attempt to play games, but enough to have a plan, you know, for practice. And something that was, I really enjoyed about it is, when you remove like all of the team aspects of the sport, the riding and clearing and man up, man down and um, the face-offs and wings and six on six and set plays and all that, we take that all away. You can really focus on just getting better individually from a skill standpoint. So I was able to go a lot deeper, not just, you know, in, in coaching each individual, but um, kind of looking back and, uh, you know, doing like an audit on the things I coach and why I coach them and, having a chance to really dig deep into other teams around the country, because normally you, know, you prepare for a team for a couple of days and you play the game and then you take the lessons from it and you move on, but you don't get a chance to really follow a team and see how they evolve. So it was, um, it was kind of rewarding to kind of have that, like, I guess, be like an educated fan 
Um, and I was also to be able to you know, communicate with some coaching staffs. Uh, we had no skin in the game. We weren't going to play any of these coaches. So act as somewhat of a, I guess, a consultant or just a friend to just to talk about, you know, the Rutgers games or you know, the Duke games or, you know, the, some of the coaching staffs that I'm, I'm pretty close with. So um, that was interesting, like part outsider, part insider, follow a couple of different teams and then, um, you know, have a better feel for why we do the things we do or, or maybe, you know, find better ways to do things when, you know, I'm not, the demands of my time were, were just not there. So there was definitely silver linings and the skill development part of it, like really getting a better feel for how the game is evolving in the shot clock era and being able to apply some of that lessons when we did have our team back. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, we would have rather played a season, honestly, but in the absence of a season, I do feel like progress was made you know, across the board in our program. And something I have taken from you that you taught us at Rutgers in terms of that development was used to be like, hey, you're, you're here. This is where you could be based off of your potential. This is what you need to do to get there. And it wasn't like a, you know, a very broad answer when you would say that it was like, Hey, you need to do this drill. You need to do this drill. You need to do this drill and this drill. And this is how you maximize that drill. So that's something that I really always appreciate and something that, you know, clearly Princeton has, has benefited from that in 2021 headed, headed now into 2022. Well, I think we take that approach as a coaching staff, you know, to be able to provide clarity and, and let people know where they are. I think that's, you know, part of the, you know, one of the main tools of, of communication is just being, you know, clear and, and clean with your messaging. Don't you try not to let like resentment build up or anyone kind of wondering where they stand. Um, so we've always had, we have always had an open door policy um, with, you know, guys are able to approach us, ask about the things they need to work on and then being very clear and concise about, you know, what are the things that are, um, maybe preventing you from getting to where you want to be or, you know, the things you need to do to take that next step and, and you know, go from good to great. Sometimes those conversations can be really hard to have too. And it, like, it takes, it, you can really grow with your players uh, as time goes on. Yeah. I think sometimes like in the moment when you're direct with someone and I've been on the other side of this as a player, sometimes it's, it's a little uncomfortable like, to hear the truth or, you know, or something that's not complimentary necessarily, just kind of what needs to be done. Um, but it allows you to get, once you get through that, it gives you a clear path to improvement where if you sort of dance around things or, or avoid saying some things, um, it only makes it more difficult down the road. So I think if you're kind of upfront and clear and honest about things, most of the time people end up appreciating that, even though um, if that you know, might not be the case immediately. And a big aspect of that is trust too, you know, if you, if you're, if you're showing up when you're supposed to all the time, consistent in your messaging, if you treat people, you don't have to treat people the same because not everybody is the same, but you have to treat people with respect. Um, and, you know, everyone talks about programs being a family environment. You know, I'm fortunate that, you know, most of, if not of all the programs I've been a part of, like genuinely have that. And I think that's a really important part of being able to challenge someone because you hear in, in sports a lot, like, oh, like, I love my guys. I love my team. Well, the people you love, you really hold accountable. You know, you hold your family members to a higher standard typically than, than most of your friends. So if you want to use the word love, like I love my teammates, well, you know, are you telling them the truth? And I think, um, you know, if you, if you, if you use those, the guys, the messages, the players like to send to each other, like, Oh, we love our team. We love our group of guys. Like, well, if you do, then you have to hold them accountable. Um, to the other people, like the other people that you, you know, you love in your life with your family. So um, we try to take that aspect to it, but we also want to have a lot of fun. Like, it's not like, you know, every single day you're, uh, 
you're looking for guys and telling them what they're not doing right. You're also reinforcing, you know, all the things they do well, and then just making sure the couple of things that they need to focus on are, are clear and concise. And um, because when you get to the season, like a lot of, a lot of the practices are for the whole team, you know, the drills you choose, you know, even in the offensive position works, like here's some things I want our team, our offense working on. So it might not be a practice for, you know, Austin DeVitt coast or Alex shown It's sort of for everybody with, um, you know, with a few people in mind, maybe with doing things, but um, the specific things that individuals need to improve. If, if you're not con- constantly giving guys messages, sometimes weeks and days and weeks can go by where you really aren't focusing on what's most important for you individually. Now, how do you draw that fine line between giving a player enough love versus holding them accountable? That's hard. Um, and I think that's something like, I think experience can help with that. I feel like that's something that being in um, the business for a while now, you know, I'm not maybe as emotional with what I say, um, or, or, you know, maybe think things through or, or just kind of make sure that um, you have a good feel for the, the, the person's personality and like how they take messaging. Um, but that's hard. It remains, it remains to be hard. And some days, you, you know, you, sometimes you push too far or, um, and other times maybe you wait too long to say something that needs to be said, but that's always a calculation. I think that again, like when you trust, if you develop trust, um, within your program, it's not as, um, you know, it's not as frustrating or not as difficult to, to make those decisions. And I'm just curious based off that, you know, now that you have, um, a child, you have a family, um, has that kind of changed your approach with coaching? Uh, have you kind of softened up a little bit? Has that changed at all? <laughs> people say, you know, I've heard people say like being a parent can make you a better coach because you're able to better kind of see the world through someone else's eyes a little bit more. And I don't know, for me, it's just, uh, it's made my time management skills have to improve or change because I can't just be lacrosse all the time. I can't come home from a tough day and like let that blend into time with my family. So I think that's like, that's been a little bit difficult, but then I think the time on task maybe is a little bit more focused. You know, when it's doing lacrosse preparation, I'm eliminating a, you know, a lot of distractions. Um, but I'd say like most of the stuff, I assume it'll happen when my kids get a little bit older. We have a three and a half year old and a, and a nine month old. So, you know, we're still, you know, it's still, it's still early in that, but I certainly see how like you start to see sit, your situations through your kids. And uh, I think that approach to when you have a team, I think maybe some of the things that you, you realize the impact you have, I guess, um, on people and their development, you know, based on your mood that day or your, your messaging that day. Now, are you, um, are you going to make the stick very available uh, for the kids <laughs> or are you going to let them pick it up on their own? They can pick up. There, there's a lot of stuff floating around in the house, but lacrosse sticks are a mainstay. Most of them are probably mine, like in every corner of the house. But um, no, there are there are lacrosse sticks of all shapes and sizes available for the family when the time is right. Let's go. And and touching on family, um, you being back uh, at print, or excuse me, you being back in New Jersey um, is awesome. And you're from Pennsylvania, uh, right outside Philadelphia. Um, so I guess what excites you about Princeton lacrosse and New Jersey? Well, the tradition in history is, um, you know, the first thing I think about and, you know, growing up about an hour away, some of the first lacrosse games I ever went to 
as a fan were Princeton games in the late 90s and early 2000s. So some of those those teams and those names are right when I first started playing lacrosse. You know, I picked up lacrosse a little bit later. Um, but those are, you know, like I bought Princeton mesh lacrosse shorts. You know, you like those are like that was the cool colors, you know, the orange and the black. And um, so, you know, the history and, you know, the tradition and the, and the institution also being somewhat local, like you just you know Princeton's around, you know, a couple of people who maybe went to Princeton. But um, to come full circle in my you know coaching career from you know, Princeton being one of the first programs you'd see on TV and hear about Coach Tierney and all the great student athletes that came through and um, you'd end up as a college coach working here with, you know, the, the same type of kids that, that I got to watch back in the day is really uh, ideal for me, you know, situated close to home. Uh, there's a lot of passion in the program, a lot of support from, um, from the administration and, uh, and our alums. It's just all around a really nice place to work. And the Ivy League, I think, is I mean, it's a great lacrosse league, but I think it's you know right up there with you know, the best it's ever been, top to bottom as a conference. So I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I mean, I love working at Rutgers as well. Um, and I just feel like both programs are really situated in, in a great place located in New Jersey, near hotbeds with talent, um, and both situated in, in great leagues where, where every weekend there's big time matchups. Oh, the Ivy is legit, man. I mean, it was arguably the best conference in 2020 before, and this year they're making a strong case for, the, uh, if, if not the top conference, at least up there with the ACC and the Big Ten. They, they play some good ball in the Ivy League, man. Or you guys play some good ball, man. Everybody's so excited. All the teams have done a really nice job recruiting. I think, you know, everyone had to sort of, last year everyone had the year off one way or another so i think it, it it allowed coaches to really figure out like what they want their identity to be like whether it's you know you don't really know about your team and your talent necessarily until you get everybody back together but as far as like what you want your messaging to be what you want to be built on i think uh, every ivy league program came with you know a lot of clarity and who they want to be what type of program they want to be and, and i think you're seeing that that payoff early and there's a lot of lacrosse left to be played um but, you know, we, we're, we're really excited looking up and down the Ivy League, knowing that every single weekend, every single game is going to be a great test. Um, and that's how you really want it. And that's why you come to a place like Princeton is to is to play in those big games week in, week out. Ozzy, what do you got before we uh, we move on to uh, to NASCAR? <laughs> I was just going to say, see if you got you and coach Madel on, on staff. And you mentioned before, you know, growing up in the Philly, New Jersey area, you were a fan of Princeton lacrosse. You know, both of you came from D3 backgrounds, playing D3 ball, coaching division three, and now coaching high up at the division one ranks. Do you ever draw back on your experience as a coach and as a player back at, you know, the lower levels. And now that you're coaching at the division one level, maybe like a chip on your shoulder or anything like that. Yeah, definitely the chip on your shoulder. Um, I didn't have like a real network when I started coaching and, um, I was you know, grateful that my head coach, Jamie Block from St. Mary's college got me connected with Kyle Hannon at Goucher college, um, and a grad assistant opportunity to be assistant coach and, and go to grad school. So, you know, that was my connection, just my little, you know, division three that we, we were in the same league as Goucher. So my network started really small. And when you're a division three coach, uh, you do a little bit of everything you know, equipment manager, strength coach, you know, offensive coordinator, goalie coach, defensive, you know, you can you do a little bit of everything. Um, you just have a lot on your plate recruiting, you know, you know division three, you bring in 10 to, you know, 10 to 15, 16 players a year, and you got to do a, a lot of volume recruiting. 
um, to do that. So you just learn a lot. You kind of get thrown into the fire and I think it helps prepare you. And also coaching in division three is really exciting because I think you get to try some more things. Maybe, um, you know, teams might have like more you know, weaknesses that are a little bit more pronounced or strengths that are a little bit more pronounced and you can maybe be a little bit more creative. Um, so I really enjoyed that experience in, in division three and there's some great, great programs uh, as well. So, and then the chip on the shoulder, yeah, like you're a D three guy and, you know, at first you got didn't even know anybody in division one and, um, you know, you want that opportunity to get there, you stay hungry. And then when, when you do get a chance, you know, you want to outwork everybody and show them like that you belong. And, um, I think some of that, you know, some of that is worn off a little bit because, you know, I'm just busy every day, like where I'm at, I'm not always like drawing from those experiences, but I think it's part of who I am. Like my core is, you know, you gotta, you gotta work to make it. You gotta do the best at where you're at every day to have those opportunities to grow professionally. So um, I regret nothing. I mean, every step along the way, I, I've learned a lot and been with a lot of great people, a lot of influential people. Absolutely. And I, I know Sean wants to touch on the NASCAR and kind of like the evolution of your coaching, but I, I do have a question. So all good. was there an inflection point when you're like, I'm all in on coaching and this is exactly what I want to be doing for the next X amount of years? That's a really good question. Um, you know, as a young assistant, it, like paying the bills is tough. And lacrosse in general, you know, it's, you know, it's not, e it's not an easy profession. Um, in some ways, it's a difficult career. There's not a lot of guarantees. You don't get like tenure. Um, so, you know, you, you got to kind of make it in your own. And my, uh, after my first, you know, year coaching, I, you know, friends started to get decent jobs, could, you know, afford nights out or travel and stay in hotels. And um, I couldn't do that. So, you know, heading into my second year as a coach or looking at some different things, I had some, you know, connections and like medical sales, device sales, and you think about, you know, other opportunities and things you might want to do. But um, once I got to my second year of grad school and coaching, I guess I felt a little bit more in command of my group and um, confident. I guess I was a little bit more confident having gone through that first year, kind of bridging the gap between player and coach and still being, you know, a young man. Um, and I think that second year, you know, having a lot of responsibility, feeling, you know, having, being able to actually make an impact in, in, the, in the program I was a part of. And uh, ever since I kind of got into that groove, that's really been, uh, it's really been it ever since then is just want to coach and be around athletics. And, um, you know, it's like, I really haven't, really haven't looked back too, too much from there. I and mean, there's definitely moments where it's a difficult job, you know, over COVID, it was shut down for a year, you know, you might have time to think, but and all that time away from it never once did, uh, you know, did the passion subside. Now, when you were like younger and earlier on in your lacrosse coaching career, were, did you have certain mentors or like certain people that you really look up to and you kind of wanted to emulate? Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere I've been, um, you know, starting out in college, my head coach, Jamie Block, um, was a really great mentor for us, um, challenged us, pushed us hard, cared for us, you know, he was a Salisbury guy, so we played an, an up-tempo style that was a lot of fun to practice and play. And we had, we had some pretty good teams at the time. Salisbury was, uh, well, just like they are now, but they were very overwhelming. I mean, they went undefeated for almost three years um, while I was in college. So, um, but, but Coach Block did a great job with us, helped me get my first coaching job with Kyle Hannon at Goucher. And um, he, he ran that, he did a great job running that program and building that program. And he turned like boys into men. I mean, he'd really challenge people, hold them accountable. And um, 
So he was great to learn from, like just X's and O's all the time, really into it. Uh, seeing a lot of things at once. Like I'm like, you see, you know, that's where it's like, hey, stop looking at the ball, stop watching the ball, look at everything else is going on away from the ball. And um, I think that helped kind of accelerate like my eye for like what's actually happening in games other than just looking at the ball. And then um, had a chance to work with Bill Pilot, um, an unbelievably successful coach at Roanoke college who always has um, coached an up-tempo system with a lot of pressure defensively on the perimeter and uh, pushing the ball and relentlessly in transition, taking a lot of shots, like playing with a ton of confidence and, you know, like swag, swagger, like a lot of energy. And um, that was a really fun way to coach. We had some great battles. There were some really great division three team in that era. Uh, not that there isn't now, but you know, there's definitely some really memorable battles in those days. Um, and then the opportunity to go to Duke from there is really rewarding. Every coach in the staff is just so professional and helpful from coach, you know, John Donowski, defensive coordinator, Chris Gabrielli, who's now the head coach at Providence. And then uh, Ron Caputo, longtime assistant at Duke were all uh, really good to me. We had a young group. Um, so I got to be on the ground floor of really build how like you build a program and build the fundamentals. And then uh, coach Caputo, rem you know, remains a, a significant mentor for me in, uh, in the sport of lacrosse throughout all of it. But from Duke, then I was at Bellarmine as an assistant coach, uh, good people around me there. Uh, Coach Bill Gleason, Kevin Burns, you know, Bill Gleason's one of, you know, one of my best friends, but we had a really good, good staff, cohesive staff and help, you know, get that program going a little bit there. And then uh, to Rutgers, I'd love, you know, love everybody that I've worked with at Rutgers still do. You know, Coach Brecht has, uh, you know, done a remarkable job building Rutgers. Um, and then, you know, all the assistant coaches I work with are, are now become my best friends. You know, Jesse Bernhardt, John Gorman, who's uh, now at Hofstra, you know, Jimmy Ryan, who's now the you know, defensive coordinator at Rutgers. So couldn't have asked for a greater group of guys. Mark Solchanek, who's an assistant coach at Wagner now, just couldn't ask for a better experience. Um, you know, some of the best years of my life were spent on the banks. Wow. <laughs> so it sounds like just along your journey, there's a there's been a mentor, somebody who's put their stamp on you along the way. Now, if I were to flip the question and exclude me and shown, even though we might not be the answer, are there any players along the journey that you've kind of extracted a lot from and that's really ch changed your experience as a coach, maybe the way you approach coaching or draw on inspiration. Yeah, that's all I like. I, it's like bits and pieces. And I don't even think in the, in the moment, I really understand that or appreciate it. I think that's sort of like what happens with players too. And coaches hold you accountable and they get on you, you know, you kind of grumble about it, but then later on, sometimes you realize, Oh, actually he was just telling me the truth. And, you know, but you don't always want to hear that. You want to, you know, you want to hear the, the things you want to hear. Um, but, you know, definitely just focusing on Rutgers, I think was a time when I was far enough in my career where I really like, could, you know, I could be challenged by, by, by people or decisions that they make on a field and kind of forced to realize like, oh, like, you know, sometimes when players are, you know, the, so a lot of the most difficult players to coach are some of the best players because they're confident um, and they have a will. You know, you can't just do what you're told all the time on a lacrosse field because the game's too fluid. You know, it doesn't stop and stop and start every couple of seconds. You have to have instincts. You have to take chances. You have to go too far and then reel it back a little bit, um, like to find where that line is. And if you're not always pushing forward, you know, maybe you can't make the progress you need to. But, you know, just a couple of players, you know, at Rutgers, you know, definitely Scott Bita. Um, he was respons responsible in a big way. For, for a turnaround of that of that program just um 
you know, put a lot of the team on his back from a leadership standpoint, shouldered a lot of responsibility of kind of being in between with the coaching staff and the players. Um, and he was a stubborn, confident player who, you know, obviously you love, but um, it takes that level of confidence to, uh, to be able to make the leap that he did within that program. So that's something like, you know, you don't have to agree with everything, but he was so strong. He was strong enough um, that, you know, even when he maybe didn't agree with something, he could internalize it and, uh, and never create that, like that crack in the foundation between the players and the coaches. So really learned a lot from Scott Bita and he's a outstanding young coach at Lafayette now. And then, you know, Jules Tenenberg as well, who's so gifted, um, really into lacrosse, like really, you know, has strong opinions about things. You see that now, um, or he's, he's been a really good voice um, for lacrosse and some of the issues the sport has faced and continues to, to, to face, but um, a really headstrong young man who really wants to know why you, you do the things you do. So, you, you know, that's a guy that you realize like when you sit down and you spend time with them and explain like exactly why you do the things you do, um, you can get on the same page instead of just saying, Hey, come on, do it this way. This is the way we need to do it. If you really let people into your thought process, which I, you know, I, I think I did with him. Um, if I could do it over again, I'd you know, do, I'd hopefully I'd do a better job at the time. Um, I thought when you started welcoming in like to the thought process of why, you know, we're, we're putting certain things in or focusing on certain things offensively and how it, you know, works with him or benefits him and his teammates um there's that kind of like shared it, it's like a, it's more a more collaborative plan than like coach tells player and player does it's there's a little bit more room for feedback and i think it goes back to the beginning of the podcast where you asked like how do you communicate how do you remain clear and direct it's if you build trust and you know scott Peter and jules hennenbergs are guys like i trust forever <laughs> absolutely on that i mean th those guys were our teammates Everything you said was exactly spot on. Uh, Sean, what do you got, man? I was just going to say, that's awesome. <laughs> man, that was that was awesome. And uh, yeah, I would say, you know, as, and I feel like as time goes on, we've all kind of really appreciated our experience that much more. And certainly we appreciate it at the time, but you're so focused on the moment that maybe sometimes you don't like take a step back and be like, man, like, this is awesome. Like the people I'm with are awesome. But as you get farther along, it's just like appreciated even more. I think we put a lot of stress on you know, winning games and reaching all of our goals. And, um, you know, but at the end of the season, like there's only one team that's really celebrating in the end. And I think, um, you know, you know, did we reach every single goal together at Rutgers in those years? Like, no, not every single one of them. But, you know, I, again, I have no regrets. Like, do I wish I called a different player? Did something? <laughs> yeah, of course. But in terms of, you know, being around you guys and, and seeing like the progress of the program when, when you guys were there is, you know, is something you get to be proud of forever. You know, it's not, it's not just about wins and losses. I mean, obviously like when you compete, you're trying to win, but um, you know, it's a temporary moment in your life uh, as a college student athlete. And you just want to make the most of it. I think that's the most important thing is like just trying to maximize that potential and not, you know, wasting time as a young, you know, student athlete kind of getting a feel for things like just dive in because it's what's one of the things in life that is, is definitely uh, temporary. You get kind of one shot at it. And, and when it's done nowadays, you might get six years <laughs> or seven. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Am I a trailblazer, man? <laughs> <laughs> but even that, yeah, like shown. Um, but even then it's still temporary. It's one of those things that it's finite. Once it ends, it ends. Um, and, and you guys and, and your teammates and, um, and that program made a, made a huge you know, transformation that, uh, that they continue to build from.
Coach, you were the first person I called when I committed. I, I remember you had you, you had some good you had good options. We're uh, fortunate you chose chose Rutgers. I remember. I remember. I was like, I'm 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 ready to go. Boom, let's go. And uh, listen, uh, when when we got there that first year, that was your first year there too, right? 2015. That was all of our first years. We we basically. I remember talking to you a couple of years ago when you uh, when you left Rutgers, and you were like. I feel like I graduated with you guys and I, we kind of feel the same way because we were there. We're all there for the same four years. And um, that 2015 year, our first year was, was really tough, um, tough for everybody involved. And um, you were our defensive coordinator and you made the switch the next, uh, the next year to offense and things just took off. Uh, you implemented probably the most exciting and unique styles of lacrosse uh, right now. Um, in the NASCAR system, and it was a huge part of our success, and it's now a huge part of your success at Princeton. Um, I guess what, like, what went into that process? Uh, how did you come up with this like amazing style of play? And I guess what made you? What, what's it take to implement it? Well, I, I will not take um, a ton of credit for that. I mean, I think the, that up tempo style. You know, Jim Berkman at Salisbury. You can ask him about it. He's got uh, a lot of rings, like more rings than fingers and toes um, playing that style. And I think that at the roots of lacrosse, I think that's what brings fans to the sports, that exciting action. I know it's what brought me to the sport. First time I ever saw lacrosse was a Philadelphia Wings game. And just like the end-to-end action nonstop was just like, you got to play the sport. You got to play it. Um, so I think that's like, I like watching it. I've always enjoyed it. And then I played at a program in college that kind of got up and down and then working at um, – you know, certainly at Roanoke, we really got up and down the field and pushed transition. And it was really exciting. And you never feel like you're out of a game and you go on big goal runs and your sidelines going crazy and D-middies and, um, and defensemen get the run and transition and make plays. And so it's always a style that's like, been successful that people enjoy doing. But when you look towards the top of Division One, you know, there were only a couple of programs that were really playing that way. And, you know, Brown was one that was pretty influential. Um, you know, in, in trying something different, really, like taking something from Tufts and taking that blueprint as a coaching staff too. You know, Sean Kerwin was there with Lars Tiffany. They're still together at UVA now, but, you know, Sean and Lars talked and, and, um, and, and we're like, hey, maybe, maybe we should try this. You know, I think we have some personnel that can get up and down and um, let's push the tempo a little bit, take some chance, take some risks. And that version of it was really successful for Brown, got them to the to the final four and a championship contender. Um, and so when we were at like we were at Rutgers, you know, our first year, we we're trying to figure things out as we navigate the Big Ten with a new, you know, new coaching staff and um, a talented team. But I think the, mo- the, the the top to bottom, there's a lot of talent, but I think the most concentration talent was probably in the youth um, of that group. So we were really young and took some lumps, kind of figuring things out along the way, but when you looked at it, we kind of like did a debrief on the season at the end of the year. And um, I knew I wanted to coach the offense and, um, and coach Brecht, you know, allowed me to do that, welcome that. And then, um, you know, to go along with that, you know, we discussed maybe sort of changing identities as a team or just you know, turning up the transition identity. We felt like we had some you know, defensive mid guys that had played defensive midfield that year Um that were you know equally if not more talented on the offensive end they just we just needed them in that role and then when you know you looked at 
their ability to play two ways, like, you know, you, Ozzy, Scarpello, and Mazzone, and, and, and many others um, as well. We're just able to do a lot on the field. There's good lacrosse players, you know, picking up tough TVs, prepared for the game plan defensively, in good shape, can push transition, can make good decisions. Uh, and, and then in the end, you know, it's about keeping your best athletes on the field as much as possible uh, and then having an advantage over teams, like something that you do you know, that you focus on different than other teams. And that was pre-shot clock too. There's no shot clock. So at the time in the Big Ten, that was a possession league where a lot of the coaching staffs and players would just kind of possess the ball. So if they were winning the face-off battle, they're going to hold the ball, take like possession shots to extend um, the clock there and, and kind of slow things down. And so it was a little bit of a, like a chess match, I guess, a little bit. And, uh, and we felt like, you know, that wouldn't be the best way to just like, we didn't want to just try and do what everybody else was doing. Um, Cause for us, we didn't, you know, first of all, we want to do something new and it just didn't like, it didn't seem like it would be the best way to move forward in the big 10 is just try and do what everybody else is doing. So we opened it up, we got up and down, we took a, you know, a, a list of drills that, you know, we had either developed or taken from other places, you know, coach Kerwin, um, who was, I think, you know, then at UVA at that time and moved on to UVA, he was willing to share a number of drills that, 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 that they used at Brown to get Tufts to get that started. So uh, it was a really collaborative effort. You know, then Coach Bernhardt at the time on the defensive end, he's working on getting the ball up and out and being opportunistic, like aggr fundamentally aggressive on the defensive end. So it was a whole, like a whole program decision. And I think, um, you know, you guys embraced it immediately. And, um, and when, with belief, you know, comes, you know, comes the energy and then, got a couple big wins and, and, and wrote and wrote it from there. Now, did you envision that type of success uh, in the first year of running it? Cause we went from uh, worst in the big 10 to almost first. And it was really awesome. It was probably my favorite season ever playing college lacrosse, just that group of people. And, and we had some great groups after that as well. Uh, but we were just like, I felt like we were just so new, right? It was like, it was just like, we didn't know what we didn't know. We were just going fast and like, you know, not you know, just going. Yeah, no, you know, that was a year, uh, again, like a really memorable year just due to the anxiety going into the season, not knowing. You know, we won, I think, five games the year before, and we knew we could be better than that. But, um, you know, again, when you're in the Big Ten, it's a very unforgiving league. So you can get a lot better and it doesn't mean you're going to win. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of excitement. I think nobody, everybody on the team wanted the results to be better. Just wanted the program to take a step forward. So I, I think it comes from the senior leadership, you know, I give a lot of credit to Scott Beta, but it was a whole crew. Um, you know, Scott may have been the voice of that crew, but there's a lot of guys that, you know, made the sacrifices that maybe, you know, it was harder to do before, but I think everyone kind of went all in on their, our new style of play and, we got some wins early, which always helps. Like no one wants to mess up when you're winning. So, you know, you get a couple of good wins early under your belt. Um, you know, St. John's would have been, a t which had been a tough game. Um, got that one, you know, got that one. You know, that's when we sort of introduced the style. It surprised them and we had a really good result and then got a tough win against Army. And um, it was just a really, you know, it was just a really transformational year. Just, we just wanted to keep best athletes on the field. And then obviously at the attack position, some guys took off too. Like the world was introduced to Adam Sherlin Beatties that year, who uh, had a knee injury his, his freshman year in 2015, um, his first one, and then came back and had, I think, 46 goals, um, you know, and was rookie of the year in the Big Ten. So in 2016, the fall of 2015, before the 2016 season, 
Cheryl Embiid's was was really tearing it up in practice. Like it was pretty obvious he was going to be a starting attackman. Um, so when we had an end of fall meeting with him, I was talking to him about you know his goals and um, I was getting ready to tell him like, yeah, you're going to be a starting attackman. You know, like, like go into the spring thinking of yourself as a starting attackman. Um, and and he's, his goals weren't that. His goal was to be the Big Ten Rookie of the Year. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking of, like, the guys in the recruiting list. Like, okay, you're good, but um, okay. Like, and, you know, it's all right, well, I'm going to hold you to that standard then. Well, you, you know, because there's a lot of very talented players in this league, so you better outwork them. And he did, and he was the Big Ten Rookie of the Year. So um, that's like, like, again, with that confidence, you can call it, you know, stubborn, confident, whatever it is, but um, – he was one of one of the guys that backed it up. So there's a ton of talent on that team. You know, the leadership from the senior crew, Scott Bita, the Canadian, you know, goal scoring natural talent and, and hunger from Cheryl Embiidis. And then, you know, Jules Hennenberg kind of was introduced to the world as that ex attackman, able to really do a little bit of everything. And then, you know, the rope unit that uh, was just a nightmare for everybody to deal with. And I remember. Um, when Charlotte Beatties was hurt during the 2015 year, Jules was starting. He had a rough game against Maryland and we're walking back to the dorms. And at the time Jules was playing lefty and Charlotte Beatties was a lefty and Jules's versatility ultimately got him moved by. I remember he's like, similar to what he said to you. He's like, Oh, Jules better not drop the ball next game. Cause I'm going to take a spot next year. <laughs> and I had never, and I had never seen him play. He was hurt. And I'm walking back. I'm like, Ah, this guy. All right. Like we just lost a tough game, like very close game the last minute, one of those one goal games or last 10 seconds, actually. And I'm just like, all right, this guy. And then you blink a year later and he's a big 10 offensive freshman of the year. <laughs> yeah. He's an amazing story. And then that, that was it. And then, um, so that was my second year at Rutgers. His was his first year healthy and 46 goals. And then, um, uh, unfortunately towards ACL right before the season two, the next two years in a row. Um, and went on to still do great things, but what a remarkable story. That's like a, someone should write a book about it. You, you, got, you guys should write a book about it. I'll write the, I'll write the book about it. Or me and Ozzy will be co- co-writers. Uh, what was it? Um, I wanted to see uh, now in terms of um, now, Ozzy, you have anything on the Rutgers part? I'm going to shift it to Princeton. If you, uh, uh, I, I, I want to shift out of Rutgers. I want to shift into Princeton. And then I also want to ask some, you know, coaching actual stuff more specific to you uh, around the end. So floor is yours, Sean. All right, no worries. Um, all right. So in terms of when you got to Princeton, I remember talking to you in the fall and this, you had already been there for a while, but you, you had a lot of, you had, obviously you lost Michael Sowers in 2020. You lost a really good group, uh, McCarthy with a number of other guys. And I remember talking to you. And you were just super confident in this group that you have now. And I remember you were like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of those younger Rutgers teams. And um, just how did the process go from implementing that NASCAR system to Princeton? Uh, Because it's obviously, it can't be the same um, because it's a completely different situation. And I guess talk about the evolution of that NASCAR system that really has seemed to uh, seep into the six on six play now. I think with the shot clock, you know, it makes NASCAR, it kind of um, compresses it a little bit where you have to make decisions a little bit quicker. Um, the original NASCAR had phases where you'd want to try and you know, 
push push the ball up in transition, get numbers, get a fast break, a 5v4 attack like quickly. And if you didn't get numbers or an opportunity like to do that, we would settle and dodge with our D middies involving O middies on the other team and just kind of playing as we subbed. And then once we had the six on six personnel on the field, you kind of shift into different style of, of play. So it was like a three phase um, system. And now the shot clock, I think you kind of tighten that up and we still, we still want to push transition normally get the ball up and out and try and get fast breaks and you know, five V fours and, and everything. But um, if you don't, you just, if we don't, we just have to be a little bit more mindful of, of strategically what we're trying to accomplish. If we don't really want to waste 25 seconds, kind of passing the ball around or probing or testing, we want to say, Hey, we want to get to this guy in the corner to dodge that guy. And um, if we get something out of it, great. If not, we got to move on a little bit quicker and, and get the six on six with our personnel or like, are we just going to leave those guys out there and stay play for that possession? So you can't really lean as hard into like the layers of it with the shot clock. But, um, but from going from Rutgers to Princeton, you know, coach Madelon, you know, much like coach Brack, like embrace the idea of it, you know, just looking at the roster and knowing this, this skill set of the guys in the team and, I think the, you know, the Princeton team in 2019 had guys that played two way, like they had athletes in the midfield and they were sort of trying to figure out where they were best suited. They were a little young, a couple freshmen. And um, so, you know, they were still in a phase where like, we're not really sure which guys are O mids, D mids. They're just midfielders. They're pretty good at at both, but we need to, you know, figure out what, you know, how to use them the best. And um, and I think when you had Michael Sowers that year and those other guys were really young, you know, I think at the time they're like, hey, let's get the ball to Sowers a lot and then, um, you know, just get our guys on the field and let him sort of conduct that where we were going to continue to do that to some extent. But in the meantime, like before we got to the part where, you know, Sowers was maybe you know sitting in the invert and controlling some things, you know, we wanted to be able to be diverse in how we attack team, you know, starting off from you know, attacking in transition, using our two way middies to, you um, to, to kind of manipulate matchups like before we got the six on six and then um you know and then like and, and then moving michael sowers around too not just like having him be at x the whole time we'd have him dodge at the high wing with a mat with, with a pick from a d midi as we go so it was really just about trying to keep our again keep our best athletes on the field and do something like a little bit different than what our opponents did but coach madelon he was all in on it you know he having played against or coached against Rutgers every year for a number of years and then uh, his roots run deep in that transition system as well, where he was an All-American goalie at Roanoke back in the day and then played a number of years in the MLL, which is a, you know, ferocious pace. So, you know, I think that's part of his identity and it it felt great for me, you know, giving me the confidence just to integrate, you know, something I feel strongly about into the system here at day from day one. Now, do you think personally to run a system like this, that you have to have the right personnel or can you develop the personnel to integrate into using this run and gun type system? Um, you kind of like, you kind of need to, you have to be honest with yourself. You can want to play that style. Um, but if you, if you don't have the, the, the pieces, you can't kind of fit the, uh, the square peg into a round hole or you, you can turn the ball over and get frustrated or ask people to do things that, you know, isn't what they do best. So you can recruit to it. I think that's something that, that we do. We don't, we don't like recruit. Like, I don't know that we call guys like NASCAR middies. Like, I don't know if we go that far with it, but being able to do multiple things, like 
play defense, play offense, have the speed, make good decisions. Um, it's really about what, what amount of risk are you willing to accept? Like the Brown teams, like they took crazy shots. They would just go and attack and try and jam it right down your throat, like go right at you. Um, and almost like re reckless and just overwhelm you with their aggression offensively and risk-taking where our version at Rutgers and then, you know, our version here at Princeton is not really like that. Like there's certainly an elevated risk because you are, you know, dodging while you sub and you might turn the ball over like in five seconds or the goalie can make a great save and now you're playing defense again. So there is risk inherent when you're doing that. And I, I think a lot of coaches just don't want that. They want to give the O guys the ball and let the O guys do what they practice. And I feel that too. And I don't, so it was never going to be, at least the, the coaching staff I've been in so far, it wasn't going to be like, let's just do something crazy. It was just, hey, let's exploit um, an area that we feel like we can gain an advantage in with, with our personnel. And then just knowing it could be difficult to prepare for in a couple of days, um, you know, that could, you know, could, could help us you know, keep that advantage. But I don't know, it changes. Like some games, we, we barely do it at all. Like it's like a, there's no real equation. It's more of a, I mean, some of it's an equation. You're looking at the face-off statistics and the possession time. So there are like, there are things you're looking at, but it's also a feel for the game. You know, how long was that possession on defense? It was a long possession on defense. If we get a shot clock reset, um, you know, where we just man down for a while, you know, there's times when you want to kind of call that off and get your guys on. Um, so sometimes we don't do it a lot, but it's just a tool, something we always practice and, um, and always have if we can kind of, you know, if we need to turn the dial up and feel like that, like, we can attack more in transition. Um, maybe a team has like omitties that really don't want to be on the D end and we want to make, you know, make it a point to keep them on that end or like four switches and then keep them on there. Like that's a layer of it too. We can do sub games. We haven't done a lot of that um, at Princeton or, or at Rutgers. We kind of just replace that with playing, um, playing while we sub as opposed to like trying to create like one situation, but there are different ways you can, you can keep your guys in the field and, and make it difficult for, you know, for the other team. The reason why I ask that is because, I mean, it, it definitely comes down to personnel and, and being an open-minded staff in which you've had that experience, right? But it, to me, it's like a no-brainer to implement some of those things, like pass down, pick down, putting teams in vulnerable, vulnerable positions where they're weak, there's a level element of unpredictability, and then the razor picks. So it seems like it's becoming more of a common theme with a lot of teams using it, up picks as well, in tight areas where the D guys are getting over, under, puts them in those spots. So... I don't know, it just kind of blows my mind that maybe some staffs teach their own, have not used some of these techniques because they definitely work if you drill them out and rep them out. Yeah, I uh, I agree. And I think you know, if you don't, some teams like you just don't have the personnel or as a coach, you're wired a certain way where like you, you know, maybe you do want to puppeteer more things or you're good at that. Like you see the game that way or, you know, or like everything does have to go through a couple guys and, you know, so there's, there's, there's reasons for it, but overall, I don't, it's not even strategically, it's not the schemes, it's not the X's and O's, it's the mindset, it's the philosophy of attacking in all the gray areas, never feeling like you're out of a game, you know, you do all the ground ball scramble drills, the number drills, the, the D guys are playing offense, the offensive guys are playing defense and practice for some, you know, for some of the drills and some of the reps, so it's just one of the, I, I feel like, you know, uh, when I'm asked about it, like I, I feel like when you boil it down, it's, it's energizing. It energizes your bench. It energizes the guy, the guys enjoy practice. They don't always know that, know it, but like I used to tell you guys at Rutgers sometimes when, when guys would be a little salty, it's like, Hey, I'm going to ship you down, you know, to program <laughs> a for a week. And then you're going to come back, bring me flowers. Cause like we have the most fun practices. Um, 
but some guys don't know that. But I do think it, you know it's just one of those things where D is really hard. Like you, like you get dodged all game long. Um, you know, when you do things well, you get a little clap. If you do something wrong, there's a goal scored and your coach's palms up and all that. So to be able to reward guys who you know dig in and do things on the defensive end for what your team needs, like to reward those guys not just in games but in practice to be able to do what they like to do, um, which is you know play the offensive side of the ball as well and impact the game that way. Um, I just think it keeps everybody at, at a pretty good, you know, keeps tanks like energy tanks a little bit higher. And then you always feel like you're in a game. We had multiple games uh, when we were all together where we went down six to one and you don't, nobody, nobody batted an eye. Like, okay, like we're going to go on a run. And more often than not, we did. <laughs> Penn state 2016. Yeah. It's probably one of my favorite games, if not my favorite game of all time by far. Yeah. Now it's it's funny you said about like the mindset and energizing one of the best and allowing your middies to play both ways and you have an up tempo practice. Brody Merrill once said to me, he's like, Ozzy, it's kind of ironic that people when they play offense they don't get tired. They could just play 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 all day, right? <laughs> um, but with that being said, okay, back in the day you used to watch a shit ton of film, and that's definitely how you evolved as a coach. If you were to quantify how many hours a week of film you're watching with practice, so question one would be. Uh, hours a week of Princeton practice and then hours a week of non-Princeton related lacrosse. What would you say for both? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's a lot. I mean, I I would say most practices I'd spend at least an hour watching and taking notes from, like making the film clips. I mean, some days more, some days like you're just trying to grab a few clips and make, you know, a couple of real points. But the, I love watching film with the team. Like I watch a ton of film myself. Some of it's like, on topic. Like oh, I really want to, you know, watch the team we're playing, like watch Rutgers, figure out what they're doing. Like there's some of that. And then you're like, oh, I'm curious about this team or, oh, we just played Georgetown. And I like some of the things they do on man up. So I'm going to go back and watch all their man ups from earlier so you can really like i fall down a, like a lot of those rabbit holes um so it's a it's a lot a lot of film and then with our team you know we try to watch 20 to 30 minutes a day um split offense defense we do some team stuff as well um and i i, I just like that because i feel like it's a time to you know, to have a room and a, it's like a classroom where you know, I probably, I, mean, I do most of the talking, but I, I like it when people speak up or have a question or see something on the film that I don't see. Uh, some of the technology now is amazing where guys can like chat, like did a guy last night send me a man up play that thought might fit in with the type of philosophy we have and we're, we're going to run it. Um, like, that's awesome. I kind of do my job for me. Um, but no, I think the, the film, when you watch film with your team a decent amount, they start to like, see the game a little bit like you do um which you know as coaches with you know with the experience that we have and even guys that we have i mean our guys are really bright and care a lot about lacrosse and and are far advanced than from where i was at their age but still like you know sometimes they might see something for the first or second time that we've seen many many times so if we can have a feel by watching film and having those conversations like if we can have a good indicator of where our guys are at um, it allows us to focus on the things that are most important. And it's really easy as a coach. And I, I probably make this still make this mistake often. Um, but I try to be aware of it is that you don't, you can't just coach to the level of like your most experienced or like most talented player. 
you know, some guys like they, they watch their practices. They're very diligent. They take notes. They're really into it. They're watching all the other games and other guys just kind of like, or maybe just naturally gifted or just starting to learn, um, you know, the, the demands of, of, of a lacrosse game and the adjustments that people can make and, and all that. So if you kind of just latch on to the guys that are always agreeing with you or sharing thoughts with you and, um, you got to make sure you're bringing everybody along because if you got three or four guys that are really dialed into everything you're doing and coming up with new ideas, but then you have three or four guys that are just barely holding on. And every time you like add something else, well, then they forget something from three days ago. Uh, so you have to be mindful of that. Like don't, you got to like coach to your, to your freshmen. You know, you got to coach to the guys that are, are new. Um, it helps when you have upperclassmen. I think coaching continuity is really important from that standpoint where like, if you're, a coach of the side of the ball, or really any, any coach in a program for a few years, um, your expectations become a little bit more clear throughout the program. So then you have upperclassmen or more experienced guys that can kind of handle like the non-negotiable parts, things that haven't changed over the years. And then you can focus more on the details. Um, but as far as your original question, like how much film quantify it, I don't know, like three hours a day. <laughs> That's awesome. Just in like, like maybe not all at once, but yeah, films and all it's pretty much an all the time thing. I remember seeing this week, um, because it's the combine at the NFL and the new coach of the Dolphins was being interviewed, and he wanted all his film from his four or five years at San Francisco. And I think it was like eight hundred and ninety thousand cut-ups or something like that. Or something like absurd like that. Yeah, I keep pretty much everything. Like I'm like a, a digital hoarder. I have like all of our Rutgers practices. So like Ozzy, if you scored a sick goal like in three-quarter NASCAR drill, um, you know, Hopkins week four years ago, five years, I probably have that uh, you know, shown. Like like I have you like I probably have amazing amazing clips of you practicing face-offs like down the line of the sidelines. You know? <laughs> Being on the field in the middle of one of our games. <laughs> Like in between faceoffs, coaching with Mark last year, he gave me so much crap about that all the time. It was hilarious. <laughs> he used to be like, "Yeah, Sean, remember when I used to uh, take you off the field because you were doing faceoffs on the sideline?" <laughs> we're like, "Hey, you got to go in now, bud." <laughs> I remember that. Oh my god. Oh man. Good times. Absolutely. Well, coach, um, we've had you for a long time, and and we can't thank you enough for your time. And obviously, uh, we'll certainly always have um you know the bond that we create at Rutgers and even though you're at Princeton we're rooting for you um and uh we're just we're just looking forward to an exciting game tomorrow I mean Friday Night Lights what more could you ask for I mean two top 10 teams uh top five out. right oh top six no so top seven or eight top seven come on stop it we got too much that's the rat poison right that's all right all right, right. Yeah. <laughs> too, much, too much rat poison man Austin, no I uh I uh, have a tremendous respect, obviously, for Rucker. They're a great program. It's not, it's not a secret um, anymore. You know, they go to the quarterfinals. We're really close to a Final Four. Um, you know, great people in that program. You know, obviously, you, you watch them play this year. You watch the, you know, talk about energy. Like, that's a team that brings it every day. A really professional approach to what they do. And I work at Princeton now where I love my team. I love my coaching staff. You know, Coach Malon and Coach Hirsch. Like, like you know. It's a very you know, different people, but a very similar type of collaborative environment that it was at Rutgers. So um, no surprise we're here, you know, tomorrow night, you know, for the state championship under the lights at 52. Back to see the practice. Back to
Crusher. Area center on the run and it goes low to score. The Tigers fully upset, knock off third ranked Georgetown 10 to 8. Princeton next up for them. They will take on Rutgers next week. The Princeton team today played one heck of a game. Uh, we are here with one of the top offensive minds in lacrosse, one of our former coaches at Rutgers, current Princeton offensive coordinator, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Mitchell. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.